Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean Stewart, welcome to the roundtable. Hey, guys. Uh, great to connect as always, guys. Hey, we're going to try to uh, spin a few plates, um, more than one at once in this first segment. I want to try to connect a series of stories for a discussion uh, about the kind of current state of the public square. And here are the three things I want to put together. We've got Trump returning to Instagram and Facebook, a kind of surprise announcement by Meta. We've got Jordan Peterson arriving uh, for this, I don't know, uh, Air Canada equivalent type center in Ottawa. I think it's called the Canadian Tire Center. Um, thousands upon thousands of people turning out to hear him for a live show next week in Ottawa. And then the anniversary, the one year anniversary of the convoy, the trucker protest. Amazing to think that was only... 12 months ago. Uh, I want to come to you first, Stuart, because I, I I need some help here. Uh, on one hand, I'm being told a lot in the media that, you know, a tide has turned, that the fever swamps of populism and uh, a kind of angry, roiling public has abated as the pandemic seems to have abated too. But then I see these events. Um, I see these figures like Peterson, like Trump, um, I see the reverberations of the convoy, the angry po- protests surrounding the pr- our prime minister wherever he goes in Canada. Where are we at? Is this a is it a question of spectrum, or do you think something is flipped in the popular culture in the public discourse? Yeah, I, I think actually the the Jordan Peterson thing, Peterson thing is interesting because I think he's been kind of misclassified. Um, I've always seen him as kind of like a Tony Robbins like self help kind of figure and. Um, you know, he gets into the culture war, which I think he does on purpose, um, and that I think affects people's view of him. But, you know, early Jordan Peterson was just telling young men to make their beds and make something of themselves. And I think that's where most of that kind of loyalty comes from. The thousands of people who come out the same way they would come out for someone who, you know, Oprah or someone like that. Um, I think there's a, maybe a small relation to this uh, with Peterson, but only a small one. Um I think with the protests with the prime minister, I think that you, we're not fully out of the pandemic phase yet. And a lot of this comes from, you know, angst about pandemic uh, measures and that's still lingering. And there is this sort of, you know, the, the economy is changing right now um, and the cost of living is a big thing. But I think what really makes these things burst into actual movements is recessions and job losses and people actually being afraid for their futures. So I don't think we're into anything, um, you know, big right now. Um, I think this is still the same small group that were protesting the PM before. And, um, you know, there was energy there that could be applied to a broader movement, but I don't think it's there as a political movement yet. There, there are kind of different entry points for me uh, in the three separate yet related stories that you raised, Rudyard. And 
maybe later in the conversation, I'll come back to the bigger picture and what it tells us about our politics and our society and, you know, the the uh, role of a democratized public square and all the rest. Um, but let me just pick up the point uh, that Stuart made about um, the protests surrounding the prime minister. You know, I can't help but think in a way that the prime minister and the protesters kind of uh, are uh, oddly um, need each other um, in the sense that um, uh, the, the the prime minister and his team, uh, I don't think, um, you know, notwithstanding potential security risks and so on, which are, are serious and, and ought to be taken seriously, you know, there is a world in which um, one of the ways in which this government is going to uh, ultimately be reelected in 2025 is to convince a large swath of voters um, that there is something um, uh, to be concerned about Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party and to try to associate him and the party uh, with some of these uh, uh, movements around the country. And so I, I think it, it it isn't an accident that at different times we see the, the prime minister and the government um, kind of lean into some of these issues, whether it's um, guns or uh, or um, some of the prime minister's past comments about um, about vaccines or whatever. I, 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 I don't think it's a it's entirely an accident um, that uh, that he's provoked this reaction. And I think if you gave him and his team kind of a truth serum, they might not even say that they minded all that much for, for the reason that I that I set out that um uh, I think we're increasingly going to hear through this parliamentary session and in the lead up to the next election, whenever it is, um, that uh, Pierre Polyev, for all intents and purposes, is the de facto leader of this movement of, you know, call it whatever you want, angry populists on, on the right. I, I think that's core to, uh, to, to this government and this prime minister's ultimate kind of political strategy. Mm, interesting stuff. Uh, you know, Trump has had a pretty good uh, 30 to 60 days. Uh, recent poll numbers show him um, the odds on favorite by, by a good margin, a lot of key Republican primaries. And it's amazing to think, guys, we are like less than a year out from the Iowa caucuses, 12 months, uh, and we will be, you know, into full swing in terms of delegate selection for the Republican contest. Uh, so I, I kind of link that up with I think the Peterson rally fascinates me. One, because it's Ottawa, which just seems a bit incongruent. You know, how is this guy filling a stadium of, you know, we're, we're talking like a, <laughs> we're, I don't know who plays there, Stuart. I mean, this is like a, this is a big sports stadium. Okay. This is Ottawa. And let's face it, this day and age, going to a Jordan Peterson event, you know, is more than just showing up at a Tony Robbins, you know, motivational seminar. It is a statement. Uh, so there are clearly a lot of people out there who want to make a statement, who want to feel like they're part of a movement. And I guess that's the part to me that seems somehow missing some of the media discourse. I'm not so sure it's just the pandemic. I'm not so sure this movement was just activated around vaccines and all the crazy controls that were put into place and you know we now look back at something like the great barrington declaration that its time was kind of you know treated with you know shock and horror 
but on hindsight kind of looks like the rational reasonable response we should have had to covid i put that all together and I, I don't know i think there's something bigger here i think there's a more enduring movement that you know maybe pierre Pauli have found in the leadership he seems to be struggling right now to con- reconnect with that movement as the head of the conservative party um what are your thoughts there, Stuart? Movement versus malaise. I think that seems to be the kind of dichotomy, the tension uh, between how we analyze this. Yeah. Yeah. The last time I was at the, the arena next to my house was to see Pearl Jam. Um, so that, that is the equivalent of Jordan Peterson right now is uh, Eddie Vedder. Um, so I think I think the way I look at this and the way that I've always looked at this is um, I so I am basically allergic to mobs and protests and things like that. Like it's not something that I have any interest in doing. And um, the trucker convoy annoyed me. Um, and really, the public disorder annoyed me. But I think that I was one of a big chunk of Canadians who had serious misgivings about a lot of the things that were going on during the pandemic. And you know, school closures, I think, is probably the most common one where, you know, we could look to Europe and see that all the schools were open the entire time and that the numbers weren't massively different. Um, and then it was, you know, almost offensive to um, quibble with these kind of things while they were happening. And I think that, you know, it's it's tough for Polyev because the trucker convoy became this sort of symbolic thing for people who disagreed with these measures. But also there was a lot of public disorder and stuff that people don't like. If you take any protest that's ever happened in Canada, most Canadians will be kind of allergic to it because they don't like disorder. They want things to be ordered and their lives to not be affected by the stuff they can't control, um, even if they agree with what's being said. So that is a hard needle to thread as a political leader because you know you see this with the progressive parties where they have to keep up, you know, climate change rhetoric that is satisfying to their base while these kind of pipeline protests are happening while knowing that most Canadians don't like them. Um, It is tough. And I think that is the trouble for Polyev. And I think maybe just one thing to look forward to is we have the inquiry into the Emergencies Act. The report will come out in February. How Polyev reacts to that will be really interesting because if he jumps all over it and uses it as a cudgel against the prime minister, um, I think that tells us something. But if he just kind of ignores it, that definitely tells us something. Because I know his instincts will be to attack the PM over this. So if he goes against those instincts, I think we've learned something. Rudyard, let me put a hypothesis to you uh, for reaction that reflects to your your observation that it feels like the kind of discontent in our society can't be singularly explained by contingent circumstances like the pandemic or or even inflation, um, that there's something kind of deeper going on. One of um, the episodes of Hub Dialogues in 2022 that I'm most proud of is uh, the one we did with Francis Fukuyama uh, about his new book called Liberalism and Its Discontents. And, you know, as you know, and a lot of our listeners will know, an idea that has um, been core to Fukuyama's scholarship for a long time is that um, for all of the strengths of liberalism, one of its inherent downsides is it's boring. <laughs> um, it it you know it, it it doesn't purport to kind of answer fundamental questions. It leaves those questions up to individuals or or um, certain groups or whatever. Um, and I, I don't think it's an accident that 
the Polyev uh, leadership has been, um, you know, bolstered by support from younger voters, that it will be principally young men present at the uh, Peterson event on Monday night. And it was predominantly young people, particularly young men, including, as Stuart has mentioned on this podcast a few times over the past 12 months or so, uh, Francophone men um, who uh, populated the the trucker protests in Ottawa. How much of it, Rudyard, do you think is ultimately a kind of function of what Prime Minister Trudeau called uh, a post-national state and the sense that, you know, we have peace and prosperity um, but we're kind of unrooted and unanchored and people are in search of purpose and meaning, even if, um, you know, for some of us, the the outlets that they're choosing might be um, a bit grubby or 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 whatever. How much of that kind of hypothesis hypothesis resonates with you? Well, I think with Peterson, it certainly does. I mean, if you just check out, you know, the, the videos that he's posting now to. Uh, Twitter and YouTube. I mean, they are, I would say they're a bit bizarre. I mean, it's, it's a kind of angry, it's an angry God (laughs) lecturing and kind of haranguing, um, you know, his, his fallen creation. Um, And I, I don't know. I think maybe that's return of Trump. Maybe that's why Trump, you know, last fall we thought, I thought certainly post the midterms. Okay, that's it. Trump is done. But again, I you know go look, challenge any listener. Go look at how Trump's doing in the polls. A lot of key primaries are with Republican voters overall, despite January sixth, despite you know dinners with uh, Kanye West and you know self avowed you know virulent anti semites at his uh, Mar a Lago retreat. I don't know, Sean. I, I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's liberalism is not exciting enough. It's not uh, it's not uh, demanding of us in terms of the ways that I think some people want to have uh, the security. I don't know the safety of a, a, an authoritarian voice in their life and whether that authoritarian voice is Jordan Peterson telling them to make their bed or Donald Trump saying, I'm going to build a wall. I guess what kind of worries me is that we have this craving for the strong man. Uh, I don't know how we satisfy that or where that comes from, but to me, that's the thread that binds this all together, a kind of weakness, an inability for people, many of us understandably, to to deal with freedom, uh, to accept uh, a life yes. where you are demanded, you are commanded to articulate yourself, your own views, your perspectives, your life goals each and every day on your own as a sovereign individual. I think a lot of people understandably find that exhausting, difficult, frustrating. So it's it's easy, it's tempting to seek out that strong man, uh, whether it's for your personal life in the form of Jordan Peterson or whether it's for your political civic identity in the shape of, of Donald Trump. I don't know, Stuart. Let's wrap this up. I'm getting maybe a little too philosophical here, but <laughs> but it is weird. It's the kind of end of freedom. You know, I don't know for those of you who like books read, you know, Eric Fromm's legendary 
book after the Second World War explaining the rise of National Socialism, um, uh, Escape from Freedom. Uh, to me, that has a lot of answers for our culture today. Yeah, I will just say that I, I agree there is definitely something going on with young men. And um, I, I wonder also, you know, the a lot of the kind of jobs that would sustain young men with lower educational attainment, um, you know, if we're going to get rid of those jobs, that that's something that will have consequences. And I think this is something that has been sort of slowly happening for a while where, um, you know, young men are less likely to get a university degree, less likely to do a lot of things now. And I, I think that the Peterson moment is probably explained almost exclusively by that. There's a lot of kind of lost young men and he's giving them really easy answers. And a lot of these easy answers, like making your bed in the morning is actually really good for you. <laughs> it's like a good thing to hear. Um, but I think the problem is not going to go away. And if you are ignoring it, um, you're allowing Jordan Peterson to answer those questions. If I can just make a plug before we move to the next segment, uh, for those listeners who are interested in this theme, I'd encourage you to check out uh, our episode of Hub Dialogues from 2022 with uh, Richard Rees, whose book of Boys and Men is a kind of really courageous example of a, a sociologist just following the, the data and the evidence, irrespective of how it fits within the broader kind of political or cultural narrative. And, and as Stuart just said, uh, Reeves finds that we're really failing uh, boys and men in our economy and society. And, um, you know, there's a, a kind of onus on all of us um, when we're talking about so-called gender-based analysis that we um, that we really mean it. it. It can't be simply a synonym for uh, female analysis. It really does have to ask tough questions about the choices we're making and the, the kind of differentiated consequences for both uh, uh, males and females in our society. Yeah, great point. My final contribution would just be for those of you that are kind of seeking out, you know, the Jordan Peterson's world and finding there something there for yourself, you know, great. You're all adults. I'm sure you can you can puzzle your way through his his sermons and missives. But I would just challenge all of us a little bit to understand that, you know, simple solutions are usually simple solutions. Uh, life's a little usually more complicated uh, than people would like us to to think and the irony here is that the petersons of this world are supposedly all about freedom they're all about uh, the individual asserting themselves uh, claiming their destiny shaping their lives um, but in a weird way they exist because of our own anxieties about our own freedom and our seeming inability and frustration to be able to articulate ourselves in ways that we want to see ourselves reflected back to us. So I don't know. I would just say the task of freedom is, is a difficult one. It's a hard one. It's a life project. Um, the answers aren't easy. Um, and be careful, be careful if you're seeking out simple answers, uh, because they may not ultimately lead you to uh, a condition and experience of freedom that feels normal to you, that feels reconciled, that feels uh, fulsome, uh, that feels as if you're realizing your own human potential. Okay, enough um, yogi um, <laughs> Sufi wisdom for me today. Let's go to the break and back on the other side, we're going to talk some hard politics, the return of parliament next week is there a national agenda that this liberal government 
will articulate in the next sitting of the House of Commons. We'll try to find out for you right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome to the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, and Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Okay, guys, on this back half of the show, let's talk about what happens next week, the return of Parliament. Uh, Stuart, I am kind of struggling to figure out what should I expect here in terms of a legislative agenda. There was a meeting of the Liberal Caucus in Hamilton this past week, arguably, to to focus and sharpen that agenda. What are you picking up? Do you have a sense of, I don't know, is healthcare going to dominate this session? What are the, some of the issues or themes that uh, we could be expecting our national government to take up for us? Yeah, I, th- I think actually I'm in two minds about healthcare because it, it could be that it dominates the sitting, or it could be that they want to do a deal so that it doesn't dominate the sitting because the news out of healthcare has not been good and it's not a good story for anyone. And I think if you are a provincial premier, you're going to use this moment to get as much cash as you can from the government. And if you are the prime minister, you're worried about the sense that Canadians are getting of just sort of widespread chaos in the health system. And even if you can like reasonably claim that it's not your jurisdiction, most Canadians don't care about that. They just want it to be fixed. So um, I think that's probably uh, more likely is that they will try to claim victory here and then just hope that. So for example, Doug Ford's move to use a little bit of private delivery to take some stress off the system. If that move works while the prime minister is giving out a load of cash, then the coincidence of those two things um, will be good for the prime minister. Um, so I think as far as the agenda goes, I it'll be really interesting because they have some controversial bills. They're a C-11 and C-18 um, bills that um, will center on Canada's broadcast industry at a time when, you know, we're having a discussion about the use of the CBC and how much it matters. And I think what's really great about this is we have very divergent views from both parties. Um, as long as Polyev continues down the beef on the CBC road, um, we will have two different sides that are very stark and we'll have a real debate. Um, so I think it could be fun. Does it matter, Sean, if there's a legislative agenda? I mean, let's just be as cynical as I'm often likely to be. I mean, what's the point? Uh, you know, there's a coalition here, uh, you know, not, not in fact, but in everything but between the NDP and the Liberals. Um, they'll do what they usually do which is, you know, uh, snipe away at issues and ideas that they either want to adopt or thwart and attack. And it's all going to be tactical. It's all going to be short-term uh, transactional politics. And that's what this 
parliament, this legislature is going to be as a result of the last election until we have another election. Yeah, um, I think that's right. And, you, you know, listeners will know it's not common for me to uh, uh, laud uh, Gerald Butts uh, on this podcast, the prime minister's former principal secretary and like widely seen, I think, as a a, a key kind of intellectual and political mind um, behind this government dating back to its first election in 2015. Um, but I in reading Bill Morneau's um, book uh, over the past couple of days, I'm struck um, that Morneau's view is that the failure to replace Butts when he left, of course, uh, in some disgrace following um, the controversy around uh, uh, the Attorney General or Minister of Justice, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's uh, departure from the government, Morneau says, quote, the failure to recruit someone with Jerry's vision and abilities to fill his role critically weaken the team. He goes on to say, uh, Butts' departure in February 2019 had left a gap in our ability to conceive, plan, and execute new ideas in response to the needs and interests of Canadians. When no serious effort was made to replace him with someone possessing similar skills, uh, dot, 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 many of the PMO's activities became managed by Trudeau's communications team with policy taking a secondary and clearly neglected role. Um, I mentioned that, Rudyard, because I think you're right. We're going to see a lot of uh, tactical steps on the part of the Trudeau government over this parliamentary sitting, um, you know, threats to uh, bring a, a reference case on the notwithstanding clause, to the Supreme Court, um, no doubt a lot of nods to the kind of identity politics that has come to, um, you know, I think be associated with the government, but I don't envision a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to some of the structural policy issues that we pay attention to on this podcast and whatever you think is behind it at least according to the former finance minister uh it's uh jerry butts's absence from the government that explains uh at least in part um uh the kind of policy free uh politics of the of today's trudeau government Stuart, you'd think that you know there's always the risk or the opportunity of an election so you know, isn't now the time to start to flesh out some of those planks that could take a Liberal Party into another federal campaign? I mean, I'm kind of struggling, I guess, to think what would be the, you know, what would be the election agenda for the Liberal Party of Canada and this prime minister's, uh, you know, renewed attempts at the ballot to claim a majority after you know, two failures now um, back to back. So what is there? I mean, what's in the shop window? I'm I'm searching here. It's kind of, it seems like a bunch of um, markdowns and, uh, you know, hand-me-downs uh, as I walk by uh, LPC headquarters and, and peer in through the big glass pane on, uh, on Sussex Street. Yeah, I think that is... If I were a liberal partisan, I would be a little worried about that because even, you know, last election we had universal daycare, which, you know, over the course of Canadian politics is a fairly major thing to propose and then to mostly get in motion. I mean, it's not fully implemented. It never was intended to be a full universal program. But I mean, 
I just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it started for me. Um, it's a big difference in my monthly finances. And the other thing, which is maybe relevant to the debate around inflation, is that it was retroactive to April. So a lot of parents in Ontario got a big check of maybe several thousand dollars in the mail in December. Um, so that kind of stuff you would think would move the needle. But if you're looking at the polling, it hasn't. And actually, the conservatives have been shooting up in the polls lately. Um, so I think that, you know, the sense of malaise that people are feeling about the country, it's not really like a populist surge. It's more just people are tired. And I think that's maybe the biggest existential fear for this government is that people are just tired of them. I think that the Harper government felt that in 2015 when people were just done. Um, so, you know, you can keep winning tactical battles all you want, but if the vision is gone, uh, it's not a good sign. Can I just make two points uh, in response to what you both have said? Um, you know, to your question, uh, Rudyard, I, I think it kind of connects to our earlier conversation, which all things being equal, if we went into an election campaign tomorrow, the Trudeau's argument, uh, the Trudeau government's argument for re-election would be a negative argument. It would be the reasons not to vote for Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives, not an affirmative reason uh, for their own re-election. And as Stuart says, I think that's a precarious place to be in the world of electoral politics. The, on the second point, the question is, what's the affirmative case for Polyev and the Conservatives? On uh, early next week, we'll have an, a new episode of Hub Dialogues with Ginny Roth, um, the conservative strategist and occasional hub contributor. And I put that question to her in the event that we don't have an election in 2023, what would be some markers or benchmarks that um, the conservative party is moving in the right direction? And, and her argument was like inflation, the key will be, is the conservative party, is Pierre Polyev essentially setting the goalposts of political and policy debate in 2023 as they did in 2021, 2022 on inflation. And in that vein, she encouraged uh, me and listeners to follow the issues around um, kind of urban disorder. And I think she'd include in the list uh, crime, uh, homelessness, and um, and issues around drugs and addiction. Um, Rudyard, you're in Toronto. You know, it just seems like every day there's another high profile incident on the in the transit system or elsewhere. You know, one can't help but think that um, that crime, the, the salience of, of crime as an issue is going to loom large over the politics there in 2023. I would just say in parentheses, uh, you'll know that I'm uh, speaking to you today from New York City. It is all anyone is talking about here. So much so, of course, it's pushed the Democratic mayor, Eric Adams, to the right on uh, enforcement and and even institutionalizing um, um, those on the streets with me with mental illness. So um, unless the Trudeau government is going to do a 180 on the way it thinks and talks about crime, um, that could be a real vulnerability because it does seem clear that Polyev and the Conservatives intend to lean into that issue. And at least for now, um, the, the, the facts are, uh, are on their side. Yeah, I think there's some great insights there, Sean. I think there's, uh, well, there's also just the cruel lesson of history that I think there's only two prime ministers in Canadian political history who have won a fourth election. Um, so Stuart, I don't know, uh, just to wrap this up, I just think, you know, if history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes and you're, you know, you're going up against 
statistically pretty, pretty substantial uh, challenge there. Um, if if you were to bet or try to think through what could be that issue, um, I think it's risky to assume that just another wedge campaign is going to get the job done. I mean, I certainly don't see how that gets you to a majority. Um, based on you know our conversation on the first half of the show, which seems to conclude that some of these forces that are propelling, you know, the Petersons and Trumps and, you know, for better or worse, the pure polyos of this world, you know, these are enduring well beyond the pandemic. And, um, you know, there is a, a movement out there of people who are genuinely alienated and dissatisfied with, with the status quo. Um, yet at the same time, the liberal government has done so much. I mean, what, you know, we're, Pharmacare, daycare, uh, now healthcare solved for another generation, echoing Paul Martin's ultimately Pyrrhic uh, boast uh, when he was prime minister. What the heck could it be? I don't know. A manned, a manned, uh, a womaned mission to Mars. <laughs> Maybe that's the uh, the creed occur for a majority government uh, for liberals and this prime minister is fourth go at the polls. Yeah, I, so one of the big draws of the Polly versus Trudeau election is that they seem to genuinely dislike each other, and it will be fun for political observers. But I do think that the liberals, even if maybe they don't consciously think this, it seems to me they think Polly will just beat himself, that he will just be so unlikable that Canadians will just say, I can't vote for this guy, even if I don't like the liberals anymore. Um, and I think that's maybe Trudeau's reasoning is that they'll just like me better than this guy. And I just... You know, at a certain point, that's not what politics is about. It's when um, Canadians have kind of turned, they turn like an ocean liner very slowly. And then all of a sudden you realize you've done a 180. Um, once that turn has happened, um, it's done. Um, so this division thing, if I were a liberal, I'd be sitting around trying to solve that problem. And, you know, the trouble they're going to have is that the finances um, don't have a lot of room for big spending things. So um, you're going to have to get creative on that. John, let's give you the last word. Oh, boy. Um, well, let me just say, uh, stay tuned to next week's uh, for great content at the Hub. I mentioned the podcast episode with Ginny Roth. On, uh, later in the week, Rudyard, we have an episode with Christopher Leonard, um, the journalist whose book, The Lords of Easy Money, uh, uh, covers a subject we've talked a lot about on this episode, which is not just the... Um, uh, quantitative easing in the U.S. during the financial crisis or the pandemic, but actually a kind of sustained experiment um, uh, with uh, with quantitative easing through the 2010s. That, in Leonard's telling, you know, helps to explain a lot of the issues that we've covered uh, in today's conversation. So, uh, there, you know, these are obviously kind of multifaceted issues, but the net effect is that we're living in a kind of fraught time where everyone's a bit on edge and. Uh, it's going to take real political leadership, I think, to offer that kind of aspirational, positive vision that you know both of you discussed today, and that I think is really core uh, to to what we do at the, at the hub to to kind of redirect some of that energy in a more constructive uh, direction. Here, here, read uh, Robert Aslan's uh, essay in the hub this week if you want some clues as to where. You know, I think a more, more coherent, ambitious uh, policy agenda for Canada could lie in terms of uh, productivity uh, and an economy that ultimately creates 
you know, the wealth that we need to sustain uh, the generous social programs that underwrite a lot of uh, this country's sense of equity and fairness. So I just uh, highlight that for listeners. Okay, guys, great discussion. We're going to do this all again next Friday. Have a terrific weekend. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.